0: special post-rapture edition of Media Loper Bebop. We're broadcasting live from heaven. First, in an exclusive sit-down interview with St. Peter, he'll tell us what it's like being the top-rated bouncer of all time and why Dick Cheney will never make it past him. Also, it turns out that not only is there beer in heaven, it's all microbrews. And finally, holy Jesus fucking Christ, the bandwidth is amazing here. All that and Coco Crisp. Nothing? Nothing from my heaven joke, guys? No, I well, I wanted
1: to let the audience react to it. <laughs> I wanted to we're,
2: we're waiting for the applause to die down.
1: I was going I was going to use that line and you actually uh, beat me to it. So. Uh,
2: which line is that?
1: One where we were doing this podcast from heaven because we'd been raptured up on was it Sunday?
2: This is what they say. The rapture really the latest is that the rapture really happened. You just didn't see it. Ah, oh, well, the traffic it is- was invisible. The judgment has started, and it's like procedural. This is the administrative portion of the rapture has begun, oh. and we're on Earth waiting for them to get to the paperwork.
0: So that we have to wait for the rapture bureaucracy, basically.
2: There's a lot to do. Yes, exactly.
1: <laughs> Isn't this all about
2: the uh, the cloud?
0: <laughs> I made that joke last week, actually.
2: Damn right, and that's why Tim is making the same joke this week. <laughs>
0: Damn it's
2: it. Tim. That's what he does.
0: All right, welcome to Media Loper Bebop, Episode 5 Thin Wild Mercury. Tonight, it's the year of the pitcher 2.0. What does that mean for baseball fans? Also, are ISPs using Netflix as an excuse to cap bandwidth? And finally, the transplanted Bob Dylan turned 70 this week. When is that guy going to do something with his life? With me, as usual, are Tim Gaskell. Here. And Kirk Biglione. Yes. So, guys, um, I did a little research, and currently, or as of yesterday, there are 30 batters in the major leagues hitting over 300, but there are 25 pitchers with ERAs under three. In 2001, just 10 years ago, for the entire season, there were only two pitchers within the R.A. under three, Randy Johnson and Curt Schilling, which may be why they won the World Series. And 44 batters ended up at the end of the season with batting averages over 300, and 12 guys hit 40 home runs. Things have changed drastically in the last 10 years. What do you make of that?
1: Well, it's definitely the, uh, <clears throat> the season of the pitcher and the catcher as opposed to the batter. The bottom line is these stats all started to change five years ago in 2006 when the drug testing became so heavy and the, uh, it kind of rooted out the <clears throat> use of steroids in the, in the major leagues. So it's, it's totally you, – you can trace it directly back to that.
2: There were, there were three perfect games last year and two of them even counted. Three perfect games in one season.
1: Which has never happened.
2: So I I think some of the steroid thing that has something to do with it, but I think it's probably a broader range of things, um, including the natural cycle of talent. Yep, which is something that occurs over longer periods of time, because you don't have to go back. I mean, if you go back ten years, yeah, it looks like the pitching, has, like the the power, has suddenly swung from from hitting to pitching. But if you go back. 25, 30 years. I mean, look at the way people used to pitch back in the day. And since we're a bunch of old men doing a podcast about being old men, which is why we're talking about Bob Dylan, because he's like the only guy around who's older than us.
1: Yes. Uh, and when you say back in the day, do you mean when the pitching mound was, um, was it four inches higher or something like that?
2: Yeah, but even after that, you still had, when did they raise the pitching mound? Or 1960, lower the
0: 1969. They lowered the mound after the. But, so you season. still
2: had like some amazing dominant pitchers in the 70s. Yes. You know, you, yeah.
1: Nolan Ryan, Tom Seaver. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely.
0: But you had amazing dominant pitchers uh, in the 90s and the and the aughts. You still had you still had Randy Johnson. You still had Pedro Martinez. You still had Greg Maddox.
2: When you look at the accomplishments, I don't think you can really even compare them. When you look at total innings pitched, total complete games, total shutouts,
0: but 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 uh, but that's a different era. There's five-man rotations and 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 specialists that, that right that come in. So with, with
2: with that, you would think that the pitchers would be phenomenal now, <laughs> because we're pampering them. Yep. they're getting so much rest.
0: And that's exactly what's happening. Is is this is. I do not okay so for the home runs that's the only place where steroids make a difference because more pitchers or at least as many pitchers were using steroids as batters I mean I I'm I'm way more on the I think what happened is that that hitting became so such such a big deal that that general managers and talent scouts started looking for good pitchers and it wasn't just one of those deals were like one of them was doing it. All the scouts and all the all the for every team started trying to figure out. Well, what we got to do is we got to got find guys with so much stuff that that these guys won't hit the ball. And so they started developing and looking for young pitchers, figuring that hitters would always be there.
2: So is it all pitching, or are we seeing an increase in uh, quality of defense? Well because that has a that has a big impact. On I, I agree. performance. I think,
1: I think defense nowadays is absolutely amazing because the highlights on baseball tonight or ESPN, you know, they've always got a highlight highlight reel every night. And you know back in the day it seemed like you know Major League Baseball would put together those films where you'd get a highlight reel from the whole season. but you can get like a whole season it seems like in a day now. So I think yes, the,
2: the they didn't have they didn't have YouTube then.
1: they didn't. That's true.
0: <laughs> Well, like, at, athletes in general, as long well, there's better training, there's better conditioning. There are legal ways of keeping your body up that don't involve performance-enhancing drugs. Except, of course, compared to what people had in the '50s and '60s and prior, et cetera, they really are performance-enhancing drugs. Just taking better care of yourself. Mickey Mantle would come up. You know, pl- <laughs> players used to smoke between innings. I mean, you're not going <laughs> to you're not going to see that anymore. So the athletes are better, meaning the meaning that mean the defense is better, meaning the pitching's better, meaning yes, the hitting's better, but yep. hitting is the hardest thing of all.
1: Yeah, but like <clears throat> like for an example, people are faster nowadays so they can track track down, you know, fly balls quicker. So yep. um uh,
0: <clears throat> and and the science behind well this guy's up, so we're going to shade him a little bit. We just saw that not to bring up what's probably a sore point with Kirk we just saw that in the Giants A series and that th- i think it was the second game when Shearholz made that play to end the game that the A's would have won the game they had moved him way way in based on you know science as it were
1: probably an iPad app for hitting uh, hitting percentages and sprays how you where you hit the ball in the field. If not, there should be, and then they'll probably ban iPads from the dugouts. So. Well,
0: I think that maybe we're just in a situation where A, there's the natural cycle of pitching, hitting, pitching, hitting that's gone on for a million years in baseball. And combine that with it's easier since it's easier since you're the team with the ball to figure out what you're gonna do every single pitch and every single play statistically against the guy in the situation than it is for the guy up at the plate. Who, who still basically is the same guy he was a hundred years ago, trying to outsmart the pitcher and having his things he can do well and things he can't do well.
1: Well, the pitcher outsmarts the batter. The batter outguesses the pitcher. I think what will I think what will be happening now, maybe in the next few years, is that you are going to see more guys coming up that are focused on batting average and getting on base and and that kind of thing. I think we we went through such a power power surge for many years and you know big bonus bucks for the for the power hitters, but if the pitchers are dominant, you want to see people who make contact. Um, you don't want to see people who either hit a home run or strike out with the strikeouts far out 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 outpacing out the home runs. So
0: bye-bye so, so. bye Adam Dunn.
1: Bye-bye, Adam. Yeah, that's why I, I just think that, you know, if I were a scout, I would be looking for the high, per, the high percentage guy rather than the power guy right now.
0: So bandwidth and capping bandwidth and ISPs and Netflix. Kurt?
2: As of May 1st, my uh, broadband Internet service provider, at has suddenly informed me after, I don't know, I've had DSL for like 13 years, that uh, they're going to put a cap on my usage of my DSL, for which I pay. They keep raising the rate; it's up to like forty dollars a month now. One hundred and fifty gigabytes. Um, Jesus. If I switch to UVerse, which I can't get in my neighborhood, they'll raise it to two hundred and fifty <laughs> gigabytes. But really, with a, a with bigger pipes, you're just going to use more. Mm-hmm. Um, and then over the limit, they're very generous, generously going to sell me 50 gigabytes at $10, <laughs> mm. which that could be worse. Some of the caps we've heard about you know, in the last you know, couple of years ago when they were talking about caps on the cable side were really bad uh, in terms of initial bandwidth and then how much they would charge you for the overage. Um, And, you know, for the average user, it doesn't seem like it would be that big a deal. And AT&T is saying it only really affects a very small percentage of their user base. However, the world is changing. Right. And everyone is starting to watch Netflix. Netflix is, you know, becoming... It's gotten more subscribers than the largest cable service. Uh, But all of that video is being delivered... Uh, through the internet pipe, not through the cable coax uh, connection. Uh, and then you start looking at services like online backup and cloud music services and subscription services like MLB, uh, where you know, you're going to watch, what, a baseball game might take three plus hours. Mm-hmm. Uh, and what if you want to watch more than you know, one game? Uh, so it, it starts to add up. And I'm looking at my history uh, because they've—they've they've, uh, now I can access my uh, internet usage history on a special account page, which I guess is a good thing. They only update it every week, but if I start using too much, they've told me they'll begin updating it daily.
0: Oh, good for uh, them!
2: In the meantime, I think I probably have to uh, modify my router so that I can come up with my own numbers. <laughs> Because I don't necessarily know that I trust AT and T's numbers. Last month I used 75 gigabytes. The month before that I used 68. The month before that I used 43. <laughs> so it's a definite trend upwards, and I think that's going to be true for most people. Now here's the thing.
0: Well, wait wait, 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 a second. Wait a second. So let me ask you this really fast. Um, it's trending up, but is it trending up in the last couple of months because baseball season started and you're using MLB app? And when in in November when. After the A's have won the World Series. See, I'll throw you that. Will you stop using that and it'll go down?
2: I don't know. Maybe I'll start watching more movies. Maybe I will need more bandwidth for other reasons. Um, I use it for work, too. I work from home. I, you know, am, January is extremely high because I made a change. I do all of my backups to a storage server at my home. But I also move certain things to my Amazon S3 account because that's more secure if something happens to the house. So things like financial data, which you know is important but isn't necessarily that huge, but also something like my iPhoto library, which is irreplaceable. Right. Photos are like the one thing you want to really take care of because you can't get them back once they're lost. So I move that. My iPhoto library... Consider everything that comes out of your camera still or video is enormous, starts to get enormous. I upgraded iPhoto, and iPhoto upgraded my library. And my backup software saw it as an entirely new library, and instead of doing an incremental update, it did a full backup in January. And so I was almost 90 gigabytes for January, just with that one software change.
0: So, okay, so let me, let me ask you the, the softball question you can knock out of the park. I'm the ISP and I, and I have to pay for all that Netflix bandwidth and I have to pay for all that iPhoto bandwidth and I have to pay for, you know, my connection to the backbone and everything else. Why, why shouldn't I? pass the cost on to you if you're going to be downloading you know if you're gonna if you're gonna watch Netflix yes, four hours a night
2: of course because you know you pay for all the electricity you use you pay for all the water you use
0: why is this different Kirk why is this different
2: here's the technical answer is that bandwidth is not constrained uh, in the way that ISPs want you to believe it's not an expendable resource you know once the infrastructure is in place, it doesn't. The the individual bits don't need to be generated and regenerated like electricity does. It's not limited like water. Um, if if there's going to be a problem, it's going to happen during peak usage when all of the available capacity is filled up and people can't connect. Uh, so the ISPs need to engineer for peak usage, and that's the way it's structured. Uh, so. It, and we're not seeing any problems during peak usage. Right. Uh, uh, On And adding a cap monthly doesn't really address that issue of planning for peak usage because the people who are going to use bandwidth are going to use bandwidth. And if you're charging them extra, they're not necessarily going to reduce during the peak hours. They would be better off implementing A a metered service, if they really wanted to address the possible problem, which is not really a problem when you get down to it, uh, they would would have a different rate during peak hours. I mean, if you want to talk about metering, do something, meter it in a way that's going to address the possible problem you're going to have. Right. The bigger issue is that, so you might say, well, all of this comes down to engineering and resources and, and planning and running a business to be efficient, but... AT&T had like a 90% margin <laughs> on their bandwidth. What they made from DSL customers versus the cost of the bandwidth and the cost to produce the bandwidth was like they made like a billion dollars in the last quarter and it cost them less than $100 million to run their operations. So they're not – I mean it's not even close to being something where they're being overrun by the way people are using bandwidth and they can't meet the demand. So
0: this is kind of like when the price of oil goes up uh, $10 a barrel and then the price at the pump goes up a dollar a gallon. But when the price of oil goes back down $10 a barrel, the price of the pump only goes down uh, $0.10 cents a gallon.
2: Well, this is the way the world works is you use whatever opportunity you have to claw back you know some additional whatever pricing control or this um, this this happens in every other form of media when they 're dealing with consumers when there's any transition it's remember the move from vinyl to CDs mm-hmm. and we had to pay extra for CDs because they cost more to produce. But then the cost of producing CDs dropped to almost nothing, and we continue to pay the inflated price for CDs. But then the music industry tells us to look back and consider the increase over time. And you know what it comes down to is music is your best entertainment value. And I suspect that the ISPs will use this argument as well. <laughs> They're going to begin saying, regardless of what you pay for your bandwidth and the overage, the internet is your best entertainment value.
1: Well, I have a couple questions. So, first of all, the 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 common rebuttal is that the ISPs are over inflating their the the problems of congestion. Is that correct? Because yeah. it's not really a problem because things like Netflix are all tied into local.
2: Well yeah, that's that's another thing is that is that um, um, the, the heavy users like Netflix, the content providers have distributed services and they're using content to, content delivery networks where they push, the con- cache the content in different areas around the country and around the world so when someone asks for a service or asks for like a stream of video it do- you don't have to go halfway around the world to get it you go to like your nearest distribution center right the
1: other the other question Kirk is why, um, why can, can you not change to a cable modem service like Time Warner Comcast something like that where you can just get a cable modem and nothing else
2: Yeah, I'm sure. Well, that's a separate question, is do I want to switch? One is I've had my uh, uh, dedicated IP address for like 15 years. Ah. I've had my IP address almost as long as I've had my phone number. Um, And I'm still in situations where that static dedicated IP address is like worth its weight in gold. So, what I would probably do if if this became a problem, and I think at some point it's going to play itself out because this is this is an argument we're going to be hearing a lot about in the next couple of years, uh, and Netflix is going to be um, fighting um,
1: uh,
2: aggressively yeah. against this sort of thing, because they see it as being. Um, you know, every one of those internet service providers that's trying to cap your bandwidth uh, has some compete, some service that's competing against Netflix and will let you stream their service at no, it, that won't count for your metering. This is going to become uh, uh, the, the big consumer issue of probably the next five years.
1: That's when I launch a satellite service and put a, I convert my Directv satellite into um, a dual capacity.
0: Wait, I, I like to. I have a follow up for this. <laughs> Tim, will you please describe the process by which you go up and change your satellite to be a dual process?
1: <laughs> okay, look, Jim. Do you remember Popular Science magazine? Yes. they, they ne- you can now subscribe to them on the iPad too. And I'm I'm looking into
2: Tim. That's popular science fiction you're reading. That's not popular science. <laughs> well, look, I'm it's popular still... science fiction. That's a different thing.
0: Do you know which satellite you quote unquote have? Uh, I just pointed at whichever
1: one, and uh, so you'll well, follow uh, you'll
0: follow the beam into space to fix your yeah. satellite.
1: Yeah, I'll just use whatever. I'll just throw a big mirror up there. And how about it a laser
0: up. pointer? Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> And you could just send a cat up there to follow the laser pointer.
2: The geek answer to Tim's suggestion that I move over to cable is that, um, is that ultimately I would probably do um, both. Where there are routers where you can have multiple broadband connections. So I would have like a cable modem and DSL, bound together at the router and I would use whichever one I would split my bandwidth across them and you'd get a really fast connection because you'd have both of them and you'd spread whatever caps there were across both of them and if one of them went down the other one would always be there.
0: So you'd have redundancy as well. Yeah. The
2: peddler now speaks to the countess who's pretending to care for him That's not a parasite. and I'll go out and say
0: I was trying to figure out why I love Bob Dylan. And like I, I kind of I think I can, can, can encapsulate it in in much much my favorite Bob Dylan so song, which so is, visions is Visions of Johanna. And Near the end of the song in the last verse he extends the verse a couple extra measures and at the point where he sings the fiddler now he now steps to the road the bass player thinks the verse is over and starts going into the lead up to the chorus
2: The fiddler he now steps to the road He writes everything's been returned which
0: was old A huge mistake you can hear it on the song and Dylan left it on the album, left it in the take, because the overall vibe of the song was that late-night, lonely vibe that he wanted, and he didn't want to not release the song just because the bass player played a couple of bad notes. And for me, the, the that kind of encapsulates why I love Bob Dylan, is that he's willing, or he was willing, to leave mistakes... Honest little mistakes on a song for his for the overall vibe of the song.
1: The the thing that that basically sealed the deal with me and Dylan was when Jim and I had this cassette we used to pass back and forth of the Royal Albert Hall '66 um, bootleg and. To me, that was um, that was the holy grail.
2: Sky,
1: I liked Dylan before that, and I'd listened to him a bit with, from the basement tapes and the Before the Flood. That was kind of my and the greatest hits. That was kind of the extent of it. But then that that cassette. Now, obviously, it's been released. It was part of the uh, bootleg series, Volume Four, I believe, and it was finally, you know, cleaned up and we had a great, great um, copy of it and we learned that it was no longer at the Royal Albert Hall but the Manchester Free Trade Hall or whatever.
0: Well, you know where the cleaned up version came from, don't you? You? The Fresno State Record Library. What? The Fresno State Record Library had a bunch of bootlegs In the record library that somebody bought in the late 60s, it had the Stones' Liver Than You'll Ever Be, and it had Dylan's Royal Albert Hall. And I went to the record library, discovered this, the Henry Madden, the real library from Fresno State, sorry. And Mm. it had a bunch of albums, and one of them was Royal Albert Hall. And you could check it out and record a copy of any record that was in that that library, and that's where we got our cleanup version.
2: The library didn't just make it. Now, this is one of the great unsolved mysteries of Fresno State Library history. <laughs> who, who bought those bootlegs for the library? Oh, but it ain't me, babe. No, 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 it ain't me, babe. It ain't me
0: you're looking for, babe.
2: So, when did we all see um, Don't Look Back for the first time?
0: it had to have come out it had to come out on, on, on VHS in the mid 80s
2: whenever whenever I first saw it it was like a light uh,
0: went off in your head
2: right it was a light bulb moment <laughs> it's like I know Bob Dylan I like Bob Dylan Bob Dylan writes great songs Bob Dylan Bob Dylan Bob Dylan, Bob Dylan. <laughs> everything about it was like wow you know Bob Dylan may have be an oldie but a goodie he may be you know this guy this already classic rock performer back in, you know, the mid-80s, but still, it's like everything about that fit the punk aesthetic.
0: Oh, yeah, totally. That was, he was, he was such a complete punk rock asshole in that film. It was amazing. But in a good way. I mean, just, just
2: (laughs) (laughs) he wins the award, for Best Folk Artist of 1965, and his manager is is telling him he has to go accept it. He's like, I don't want it. It's like, what do you you want them to do with it? He's like, tell him to give it to Donovan. (laughs) And and then later on, you actually, he has the showdown in the hotel room with Donovan, and Donovan plays his nice Bob Dylan clone song, and Dylan plays It's All Over Now, Baby Blue. You must leave now, take what you need, you think will last what you wish to keep you better grab fans the Dylan thing is something you want to mind because it's this whole you know what else was going on off the camera and then there's this this um, additional footage that came out uh, a couple of years ago from that project, some D.A. Pennebaker footage that didn't make it into the film. He re-edited it into an extra hour, and there, there's some interesting backstory stuff that emerges in that additional film, which is now in the enhanced box set. Box set. But I know there's more out there. It's similar to the, the basement tape recordings. There's more video out there, too. Well, that would
1: be. Speaking of more out there, there has <laughs> to be a lot more footage of the Manchester 66 show.
2: Yeah, the whole thing probably exists. Probably somewhere. the whole
1: thing, which is sitting somewhere, and it kills me that we can't see that.
2: Dia Pennebaker probably has it in his vaults. He has hours and hours, tens, dozens of hours, maybe hundreds of hours of, of film that he filmed. Because he filmed... Um, Eat the document.
0: Yep, mm-hmm.
2: and then Bob Dylan took over the editing, and that's how we got this messed up thing. That is the final product that, as bad as it is, is still worth watching because there are so many moments.
0: And, are moments. Well, and then even the things that you that that like so. So Joe gave me a, a VHS of Eat the Document. I don't know, like in the early '90s. And one of the things that will never see the light of day officially is the speeded up cab ride or limo ride that dylan takes with john lennon the whole thing and dylan is totally fucked up out of his mind and he's annoying the shit out of john lennon to the point where john lennon honestly wants to throw bob dylan out of the back of the limo because john
2: lennon john lennon is coming dylan is clearly sick yes yes so drunk he's you can see it's it's black and white footage, but Dylan looks green. Yeah. You can see he's like seasick, <laughs> and Lennon is going at him in a way that he's trying to get Bob Dylan to vomit on film.
1: <laughs> Why don't you take some yourself? Uh, hey, I've taken, I've taken a couple. Uh, I've taken uh, a few
2: uh, milligrams of silky once.
1: You got the tie in uh, the other time. It
2: didn't work out very I called
1: Elvis, pointing right at me. Get off! Me, get off! Me. <laughs> get off! <me. laughs>
0: What's your favorite thing about Dylan, Kirk?
2: Favorite thing associated with Dylan is probably still... Well, it's anything from that era, that 65 to 67 era. Anything that came out of that era. Even Tarantula.
0: (laughs) I never actually read Tarantula. I have a first edition.
1: Hmm, I never read
0: it. How about you, Tim?
1: Uh, My thing about Dylan is this. Um, He's one of about... Maybe half a dozen people, uh, kind of music, musical artists that have been with me the majority of my life in some form or another. You know, kind of like Dylan, Dylan Stone's Beatles, The Who, uh, The King Zeppelin, that kind of thing. You know, since very, very early days. So, and it, there's always, I always go back to him. I always have him on my iPod. I always, you know, he's always around. He's never far. He's always, I've got, you know, the DVDs. I find... Different eras, fascinating. I, I can find good Dylan songs from virtually every album he's done, even Self-Portrait. Yeah. So there, there are good songs on it. It's not a great album. So, you know, even his bad albums have
2: usually have a couple of jets. It's funny the way Tim describes uh, Dylan. He's always near. <laughs> he's never far. It's like It's He sounds like Jesus.
0: Well,
1: I mean, you know, but that's not... <laughs> like, I've always got him on the iPod. I've got. DVDs.
2: He's always with me. Well, you know, uh, yeah. <laughs> well, screw Jesus. Dylan is always with me. <laughs> Who I, needs Jesus? I've got you know. Dylan. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Well, I mean, that's kind of close to what it is with me. Is just, is just that I there's I always go through phases, and I always know that there's more stuff out there. In fifty years of music making, I mean, literally, Dylan, Bob Dylan's first album came out the year Tim and I were born, and so that's why he's always been there, and we're always discovering, always discovering new songs and new things and new interesting things about him. Kirk, favorite Dylan song. Uh
2: depends on the day and time of day. Right off the top of my head? Yep. I'll say subterranean homesick blues, but I don't mean
1: it. God knows <sighs> when, but you doing it again. Tim like a rolling stone because that's the one song that had an entire book written about
2: it once upon a time you dressed so fine do the bumps of dime in your prime then you people call say beware doll you're bound to fall you thought they were all
0: i'm kidding you i'll go with visions of johanna Kirk, favorite Dylan album. Oh, uh,
2: Highway 61 revisited.
0: Tim?
1: Uh, Blonde on Blonde.
0: Oh, later, one of us must know
2: you just did what you supposed to do. Soon
0: I'll go with Royal Albert Hall. Uh, oh shoot. The electric Can I, <laughs> I win. I... It's like, eh, no. I think that that live Dylan is still maybe the best rock and roll anybody's ever created.
1: Yeah, I, well, I, yeah, I think if I'm looking at studio albums, Slon of Blood, if I'm looking at live, yeah, by easily. You almost kind of have, because of the magnitude of his catalog, you kind of have to almost separate them. It's kind of hard to say one or the other, but Yeah. Because the Royal App, Op- the Dylan 66 is one of my favorite recordings of anything ever yeah. in the
0: universe. So, Kirk. Um, of all the stuff that you've read about Dylan and, and seen about Dylan or seen bootlegs of what would you like? What's the thing you'd like most to be officially re- released?
2: Officially released. Um, I think as Tim was noting the video footage from the Manchester the video to accompany the so-called Royal Albert Hall bootleg. That performance, which is there somewhere in someone's vault,
0: is amazing. Uh, Yeah, I agree. Tim.
1: Yeah, I agree with that. I'd love to. Curiosity gets the better of me. I'd love to see Ronaldo and Clara at some point. Um, And also, I know what I want. I want that unreleased version, the original version of Blood on the Trap.
2: The next day was a hanging day. The sky was overcast and black. Big Jim lay covered up, killed by a knife in the bag. And Rosemary on the gallows, she didn't even blink. And the hanging judge was sober, he hadn't had a drink. The only person on the scene missing was the Jack of
0: And I would say all that stuff, plus the basement tapes. Just as cleaned up as you could possibly get in this day and age and just give give us versions that are 10 discs with a bunch of crap on them and two discs of all the songs like sign on the cross and i'm not there and uh all you have to do is dream and a bunch of other god one single river and there's a whole bunch of songs that are just amazing that have never been released
1: Runs, but you don't it kind of makes you wish. It kind of makes you wish Dylan was more like Neil Young
2: in that sense.
0: Well, well the, look how
2: long it took Neil Young, though. But
0: the bootleg series is that. I mean, it, I mean, regardless no. of whether it's hit and hit right. in, in over a period of time, he started that shit in the nineties.
1: I know, I, but I my problem is I don't get the feeling that Dylan started that. The thing is, I think Neil started that whole his whole archive thing. I think Dylan is they're they're saying, look, Dylan, we found these this cache of tapes what do you think of this one for the next and he says yeah all right go for it that's the difference i think
0: so yeah i think all that stuff would be awesome if, if they get around to it and you know he's 70 so they really need to get around to it soon
2: well he doesn't need to be alive <laughs> i mean i am I, i'm not saying that bob dylan should die
0: but <laughs> newsflash kurt only wants bob dylan to die <laughs> Most underrated Bob Dylan song.
2: Most underrated Bob Dylan song these days. That's anything. I didn't get my chance to ask Tim the question of what Harry thinks of Bob Dylan.
1: Tim, what Actually, he think? likes him.
2: You know, but, he, uh, in the Harry, same way he likes the Beastie Boys.
1: But you know what? But uh, I started, I started kind of turning Harry on at a young age. And you know what he really liked were some of those kind of the long kind of. Uh, Folky story, funny kind of uh,
0: like 115th dream or like
1: or 115th dream and yeah exactly
0: motorcycle nightmare and
1: yeah so those you know those he he would really enjoy those so yeah and I play I play stuff for him all the time still so
2: I would say that Green Eggs and Ham song he did <laughs> came out of the bootleg series a few years ago.
0: How about you Tim most underrated song jeez um, that's by a- the way Kirk I know that wasn't really an answer so <laughs> nice try
1: um, I'm trying to think there's that um, there's a song on self-portrait that I think if you take it from that album and put it on another album it would be it would be a minor classic he would empty up
2: and draw his cards and would you go ahead for blind? In a game with death, Bill lost his breath in the days of 49. Oh my goodness.
0: I will go with a uh, band of the hand. Which So, in the mid 80s there was there are a bunch of stories about Dylan's recording session with Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers. And the only thing that was ever released on a Dylan album was uh, you want to ramble from uh Knocked Out Loaded. And now Knocked Out Loaded had Brownsville Girl, which is one of my favorite Dylan songs ever. By the way, that's one you should turn Harry on to is Brownsville girl. Yes.
1: Yeah, that is a great
0: song. Um but it also had that terrible song with the children's choir on it. So
1: Oh horrible
0: song. <laughs> um but Band of the Hand was from this terrible movie that was like from Michael Mann, I think, before while well, he was still doing the Miami Vice and it had like was like these cops and one of them was looked just like Johnny Lydon. Do you remember this at all? No. And the song itself is like this apocalyptic blues song. Just absolutely just chilling. And compared to everything else he was doing in the mid 80s, it was like head and shoulders above everything between Joker Man and which, by the way, my favorite video by anybody, everything between Joker Man and the first Traveling Wilburys album. This was like head and shoulders above all that stuff. Most underrated album, Kirk.
2: Oh um Geez, that would be like any of his last few albums.
0: Yeah. Tim.
1: Uh, I you know what I I would say is first. What people don't people kinda of think, oh it's his folky, it's him and the guitar. Go back and listen to it. There's like a passion and anger in his voice and a drive that is pretty, pretty awesome. And I think it's really, really, really
2: underrated. Gimme blues, I you you give me the blues, I will
0: well, go with Love and Theft because I think it's a top five Dylan album and one of the best the best album almost the best album of the two thousands. Though I would also kind of maybe say, you know what, yeah, World Gone Wrong, which is this all acoustic, all covers, and kind of the beginning of his comeback that no one really remembers as the beginning of his comeback because it was all covers. But that's the first time he sounded like the old old man, Folky, he tried to sound like on his first album. Oh, sir. Sure. Oh, sir. Just one more thing. One more thing. Tim. kind of been reading – I'm
1: kind of trying – I don't know if I'm trying to be a conspiracy theorist here or, or what. Maybe you guys have heard other things as well. But I saw that article about the uh, – they captured one of the guys who allegedly beat Brian Stowe, the San Francisco Giants fan, in the uh, Dodger Stadium parking lot back on the opening day of the season and put him into a coma, which he's still kind of in, I believe. And when the story came out, I looked at it on the LA Times and I was reading comments and somebody mentioned how people should, Dodger fans should keep boycotting games. And then I realized, you know, the Giants were just in town and they had miserable attendance uh, figures. And two things, that is their their biggest rival and the World Series champion. So you would think that would be, the, that those two things would almost make them a sellout even though it's a week weeknight. And, but the stands were almost empty. They had like 25,000, 30,000 people. And it got me thinking, is there a boycott on of the Dodgers to get, because of the McCourt situation, to force their hand, make them sell, whatever, just so they – to get out of it. And the, the fans are willing to not support the team in order to get rid of the owners. Is that the case? I'm just throwing it out there. I don't know. Is I don't, that, I don't it,
0: think there's an official boycott, but I think that it's entirely possible that, that – tens of thousands of casual Dodger fans have decided that they don't need to make the journey to Dodger stadium as long as a it's perceived as dangerous and b that asshole Frank McCourt still is fighting to take control of the team. Okay. One more thing, Kirk.
2: So, um, uh, the, uh, New York public library has released an iPad app called Biblion, which, um, Documents the New York Public Library collection of material surrounding the 1939 World's Fair, uh, which seems like it would be, you know, possibly very dry and boring. But 1939 World's Fair was the basically the introduction of television as a consumer product. It was the beginning of TV as we know it. Uh, and there were also a number of other things going on at the World's Fair that were quite interesting. This app kind of documents Uh, Not only media coverage of the World's Fair, but uh, you've got clippings, you've got photos, you've got uh, uh, newspaper reports. You also have some really interesting um, primary resource material that you would only get from a library integrated with this multimedia presentation. Um, I guess the 1939 World's Fair was somewhat risque. They had some adult entertainment. What? (laughs) So along with kind of the media coverage of the unveiling of television and, you know, the start of what we know as network TV, there's also coverage of, uh, well, there's also, um, there's a woman, a housewife, who uh, was so outraged by what she saw at the World's Fair one day, she had to go back the next day (laughs) (laughs) so that she could document in great detail all of the nudity, both of women and statues in a 5-page typed single space report and the full report is in the app integrated it's pretty cool
0: that's awesome uh, and then there's a
2: handwritten note from this guy named Emmy Brown and I'll just leave you with this this is part of the presentation in this in this app Emmy Brown wrote a letter to the president of the world's fair and his handwritten letter is in there and the first sentence is this please dear sir Let us have more clean shows like Rodeo and Midgets and other fine things. We Americans don't want any nude girl
1: shows. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I I just want to throw it out there. This is a free
2: app, by the way. I don't know if you said that. It's a free app, yeah. It's free. uh, It's iPad only right now. Uh, It's pretty awesome.
1: It's quite big. It's 252 megabytes.
2: It's huge, yeah. There's a lot of. There's a lot of photographic documentation and then scans of these documents. They look like, you know, photographs of the documents instead of low bit rate.
0: What's it called again? Biblion. Biblion? Bibli- yeah. B-I-B-L-I-O-N. Awesome. One more thing. Bill Simmons and Chuck Klosterman are two guys that you either love or hate. Me, I happen to love them both. And so whenever Klosterman's on the Bill Simmons podcast, it's always a must listen. This week, or this last week was no exception as first they talked about the NBA playoffs, which whatever, but after that they got into a really fascinating discussion about Keith Richards' biography, The Rolling Stones, why bands stay together for a long time, why older people don't find new bands, and then a real interesting thing is why older people end up liking bands they used to hate. Yeah. <laughs> Which is this, is, this is a really interesting theory. And actually, I won't spoil it. So um, if you're interested in podcasts at all, which you probably are, check out Bill Simmons' podcast with Chuck Klosterman and find out why older people end up liking bands they used to hate.
1: Mm.
0: The answer is, mm. ah, never mind. Women? Uh, no. No, here. The, the, fuck it, I'm going to spoil it anyway. Tell us. Tell us. <laughs> re- we can't wait. So the reason is, is that, you go through all the bands you used to love, right? And then the bands you used to hate are still a reminder of when you used to like music. The thing is, you get older, you stop liking music, but these bands are still around when you liked music, so if they stick around together, you're going to end up liking them, like the Eagles. This is why people see the Eagles. No one really liked the Eagles, but they're still together. People go, oh yeah, when I was in high school, I liked music. The Eagles were music, so I guess I like the Eagles, and I'll go see their concert."
2: Because there's these. one fatal flaw in that theory, Jim. Which is? The Smiths.
0: Well, you haven't stopped. Now, I'm yet.
2: never going to like the Smiths. When you're
1: Kirk, when you're 70, you're going to like the Smiths.
0: I'm not going to like the Smiths. Trust, Trust us. <laughs> and that's it for another edition of Media Lumber Bebop, Episode 5, Thin Wild Mercury. I'd like to thank Tim Gaskell. Thank you. And Kirk Biglione.
2: You're welcome.
0: We will catch you guys again next week. Thanks a lot, guys. Bye.
2: Bye.